This time on the Microbinary Podcast, we come from the Arctic Network and Climb Big Data Joint Workshop on COVID-19 Data Analysis, held on the 14th and 15th of January, 2021. My name's Sam Shepard. I work at the University of Bath. I'm a, a professor of microbial genomics, bioinformatics, and microbiology, and but also a member of the Climb Consortium. It is a great pleasure to be here today and to be able to talk to people around the world who share uh, an enthusiasm for using genomics to understand this most obnoxious pathogen that is coronavirus. So I'm going to set the scene and provide some background about uh, molecular epidemiology, how molecular epidemiology transitioned into what we might now call genomic epidemiology. And uh, I will briefly mention how this is applied to the coronavirus. So when we're thinking about disease, obviously we want to understand the pathogen that causes the disease. Okay, this is very simple. That's where we start. And many of you will be familiar with this kind of scene of uh, a clinical microbiology lab. Here's a microbiologist working with primary samples, typically blood, urine, uh, sputum, cerebrospinal fluid, etc. Okay, and from these primary samples from an infected person, we want to work out which organism is causing the disease, is causing the infection. Confirming the, the actual species of the pathogen is not actually all that difficult often, but it's not as simple as that, as of course many of you know, In some cases, the pathogen may also be found as a commensal organism. Now, this is not specifically related to COVID, but in many cases, it might be the case that a commensal organism is causing the disease. An obvious example of this would be for an infection caused by E. coli, for example, which is found commensally in human guts, but in certain circumstances, it can cause serious disease. So what, as well as understanding the species, what we really need to understand is the strain of that organism that is causing the disease. For many, many years, differentiating, that is to say, telling the difference between a good strain and a bad strain has preoccupied uh, molecular epidemiologists and microbiologists and virologists all over the world, okay? And the way that we differentiate those strains is by using typing. And so I want to introduce that that term, typing. So there are lots of different typing schemes. Over the last 20, 30 years, various schemes have been introduced that help us to tell the difference between strains of the same species. There are antibody-based approaches like serotyping, there are phage sensitivity approaches, phage typing, lots of approaches that that extract the DNA from a potential pathogen and then run it on a gel, for example, like uh, restriction or amplified fragment length polymorphism or pulse field gel electrophoresis. This is still widely used for differentiating strains, for strain typing all over the world and other methods. These are just some examples, really. And one that I certainly used a lot, which was multilocus sequence typing. So in this case, you sequence usually seven genes 
around the genome of your pathogen and you use this, these profiles to tell the difference between strains. Okay, so these typing approaches have underpinned what we would describe as molecular epidemiology for some years. They've been used in numerous ways for various bacterial pathogens and viral pathogens. One of the most important things is to try and relate the pathogen strains that are seen in the population. Because if you can relate those strains and say that they are the same strain, then you can categorize your disease as potentially as an outbreak. And of course, other people have other strains, so this may have come from another source. However, and this is the sort of central idea, the ability to relate strains depends on how well the typing approach can differentiate them, can tell them apart. So in some cases, it might be very easy to say this is strain one and this is strain two. But in other cases, that may be difficult because the typing method may lack the resolution to differentiate the strains. So, you know, straight away we think to ourselves, well, why don't we just sequence the genome of everything? And, and we've been thinking about this for many years, as probably have many of you. And in the past, the challenge always has been cost. Really, it's come down to the cost of sequencing a genome. And that's been prohibitive. So back in, these are just some, some estimates of the average cost of sequencing DNA per megabase, okay, in US dollars. So way back in 2001, it, was a, it might have been around $5,000 to, to, to sequence a megabase of DNA, okay? But this has declined rapidly and it's way less than a dollar to sequence a, a megabase now and has been for some time, okay? So as sequencing costs have fallen, sequencing the G whole genome has become really the typing approach of choice. It's no longer uh, a, a terribly good idea to bother with any other typing method when actually it's so inexpensive, it's quite cheap to just sequence the genome. Some of the analyses can be the same and we can still reference data that was collected and, and publications that use other typing approaches. But actually now, this world of molecular epidemiology that was based on these, these older typing approaches has largely been replaced by what we now might describe as genomic epidemiology. And that's sequencing the whole genome of our pathogens and comparing the strains. Unsurprisingly, this is improving understanding in lots of different ways. And I'm just gonna sort of run through a few of those now. One important thing you could consider as a, a shift from centralized genome sequencing services to servicing in sequencing in the community. So when I began sequencing genomes, I don't know, 15 or so years ago, most of my sequencing would have been done in a large specialist central laboratory, okay? And I would send my DNA and I would receive my sequences back. This is still arguably the best way to do things. However, it is now possible to buy your own sequencer and you know, by far the most common sequencing instrument at the moment in terms of certainly the amount of data produced is the Illumina platform, the MySeq, 
is actually very common in, in laboratories all around the world with other larger instruments tending to be in more specialist laboratories. So I've called that the democratization of, of the technology. Another thing is what you might consider the mobilization of sequencing. So here I'm talking about a, a different technology. Okay, so this largely depends on the Oxford Nanoport instrument, which is this small mobile phone sized in instrument. But the technology is different. There are advantages to using this technology because it produces long reads. But one of the great things about these kind of smaller, physically smaller technologies is that you can take them anywhere, okay? And you can actually put the whole laboratory, really, or a miniaturized laboratory into a suitcase. You can take this out to an area where an outbreak uh, may be occurring, and you can do your sequencing effectively in the field or with relatively small laboratory space, okay? So that's, that's made a big shift from these old-fashioned technologies. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the rise of, of genome sequencing as a tool for molecular epidemiology has allowed us to standardize the analyses, okay? So really what I mean here is that it, it, it's very easy to share DNA sequence data between laboratories. It's much harder to share uh, a gel from a, a pulse field electrophoresis tank. You can introduce controls. Those of you that use these techniques will know, but it's very hard to share that between labs. The great thing about a string of letters that represent a, a DNA sequence is that they're easy to share, okay? And what this has allowed is creation of these data archives. You know, these are databases, open access databases, where you can download, access, compare genome sequences of lots of different organisms, okay? The other thing that these databases support, so not only do they support the data, but they also represent a centralized resource for, for analysis, okay? Rudimentary analysis, perhaps in many cases, but certainly some form of comparison between the different strains and the represented by the different genome sequences. And finally, you know, of course, this has led to or made it possible to collaborate across great different distances and really understand global genomic epidemiology of many pathogens, inclu including the coronavirus. So obviously, all of these technological advances and this shared effort to really promote genomic epidemiology it's led to some challenges, okay? And the major challenge is how do we analyze such enormous amounts of data? How do we cope with, how do we store, how do we compare what we might describe as big data, okay? And this was where, this was the sort of landscape that confronted the CLIME consortium way back around seven years ago, when we thought to ourselves, uh, many people were thinking, well, we can't, we don't really have the capacity in individual labs, or maybe some of us did, but certainly not everybody has the capacity to compare such large amounts of data. And so the idea behind the CLIM consortium, which has now been succeeded by CLIM Big Data, is, is to provide the computational power to store and analyze these enormous data sets, these multiple genome data sets, also to, to create an environment where we can share the 
analytical tools. So this might be different algorithms or pipelines that are needed to compare genomes. CLIMB works in a very simple, well, it, there's lots of complexity underlying with wonderful people like Nick and, and Tom Connor, who really played a big role in setting up the systems that underpin CLIMB and CLIMB Big Data. But it's, to, to a user, it's very easy. Essentially, you access the cloud, big computer, which is distributed across multiple UK sites. You access that from your desktop computer, your laptop, and you create what you might call a virtual machine, or what we call a virtual machine. And this virtual machine, this virtual computer within the CLIMB environment that you access via the internet, gives you access to a much bigger computer than you may otherwise have access to. So lots of processing power, lots of storage, and importantly, in some cases, large RAM machines. So some of the analyses that you might use for genome sequencing might be very memory intensive. Okay, so back to genomic epidemiology. So I think I've said that we now have the technology, okay? We have the analysis tools, the analysis know-how, okay? And we have the computational power to be able to use genomic epidemiology really effectively to understand disease. So in a simple level, we can confirm epidemiological linkage between strains, okay? And we can use this for outbreak investigation and understanding transmission between strains. And also, interestingly, and relevant to the coronavirus, we can look for the source of infection. So we can look outside, perhaps, of human populations sometimes, look at other reservoirs for these uh, for different pathogen strains. We can also use genomic epidemiology as a kind of hypothesis generation framework, okay? So often we want to think about surveillance and we want to think about uh, the timing of the emergence of different strains. We want to think about transmission strains. We want to think about whether infections are, are, are primary infections or rec represent some sort of relapse or reinfection. And we can think about mixed infections, whether multiple strains potentially causing disease. And then at the other, you know, at the even more complicated end, we can think about the details of the distribution of, of the um, population structure of pathogens. Okay, so we can think about the prevalent strains. We can think about phylogeography. Do certain strains dominate in certain locations? We can identify determinants of distribution potentially. So we can think about how new mutations might promote the emergence and proliferation of a particular strain. And obviously that leads us into understanding the evolution of strains, virulence, and how these interact to promote epidemic growth, okay? So there are lots of different uh, levels of genomic epidemiology that we can use. Just to summarize, what I'd like to say is that in answer to our question, why sequence genomes in an epidemic? The answer, of course, would be that we can, on a national scale, understand strain variation and produce trees that show the relatedness of our isolates. We can also look at the genome and look at specific genetic variations that might be associated with a given strain or cluster of strains on our tree. And clearly, I'm thinking about the emergence of mutations that are associated with increased 
transmissibility or virulence. And also we can look at timescales here. On a national scale, we can see how certain strains are common and then become less common, and we can see the emergence of new strains. So I'm just going to end by saying that beyond the national scale, I hope, is what we're particularly talking about today. We, within our own countries, or even with subsections within our own countries, we can think about coronavirus surveillance, but really the strength and power of these approaches is when we bring people from around the world together using the same infrastructure or at least the same analyses, we can really start to understand global trends in disease emergence, transmission and epidemiology. Thanks, Sam. So could you just explain a bit more about the difference between, I mean, you use the word strain a lot, but could you, could you explain the difference between strains and lineages and when we use them? Possibly a difficult question, but, but if you could give an insight into that. The simple answer is that strain is a less specific term than lineage, probably. Okay, strain is a legacy term that comes out of microbiology, and it really describes a, a variant of a species uh, that, that expresses different phenotypes or genotypes in, in a laboratory setting. I think strain is a useful term. I, I, I don't mind that it's slightly vague. Lineage, on the other hand, has an evolutionary connotation. And that's a nice word to use, lineage, because it immediately makes our minds think of a tree. And it makes us think of how isolates are related to one another in some form of clustering. And usually we're thinking about sequence clusters. So to some extent, I would say that these strains are interchangeable. I certainly wouldn't want to be prescriptive and tell you that there are multiple strains in a lineage or multiple lineages in a strain, because both could potentially be true. But the real difference is that strain is this kind of legacy microbiology term and lineage is, is a much more kind of evolutionary term that makes us think of a, a phylogeny. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.